Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Innovation and Tech Talks. I'm your host, Joe Topi, Managing Editor of Innovation and Tech Today. I'm here with Christopher Golden, Dr. Christopher Golden, uh, an exciting uh, rambler of the world and a new member of Virus Hunter. Virus Hunters, Nat Geo's new show. So introduce yourself. Tell everyone who you are. Sure. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Joe, for having me on. And I uh, really appreciate being here with you. Uh, my name is Chris Golden. I am a professor of nutrition and planetary health at the Harvard School of Public Health. I am also a, an explorer and a fellow with the National Geographic Society and was one of the uh, members working on the film Virus Hunters. So speaking of Virus Hunters with Nat Geo, tell us a little bit about that. Where can, uh, I guess, viewers expect to see it? When can they tune in? Talk sure. about the so, show. Uh, what are you doing on the show? This will premiere Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern uh, on National Geographic Channel. And so everyone can kind of expect to see it there. It will be, it's kind of called a docu-special uh, where it's just a one-time event that's focused on this topic of looking at how environmental change has broadly increased our risk to future pandemics. And so it's all set in the context of COVID-19 and us experiencing this pandemic now but really highlighting the future risks of what pandemics may lay ahead and what these incredible frontline researchers are doing in the field to really understand these risks and best mitigate those risks from actually unfolding. And if you think about it, certain things like a pandemic, they really, uh, yeah, I guess, shine a light on where we had our issues, right? Uh, international travel, different health codes around the, you know, varying health uh, standards and protocol around the world. Um, there's lots of things I guess we see now that we need to improve upon, right? Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, I think that one of the things that was highlighted most to me from this pandemic was how ill-prepared we were uh, for it to hit. And this is something that scientists have been warning about for decades and really knowing this literature well and knowing these researchers quite well, uh, this is something that they knew was bound to happen. And yet we had still failed to adequately prepare for the onset of this pandemic. So um, what environmental factors out there uh, make various populations more or less vulnerable to things like COVID-19? There are so many different ways in which we are increasing our potential risk to this type of disease emergence. And so whether it is deforestation, mining, timber extraction, road proliferation, uh, agricultural expansion, all of these things are really reshaping the surface of the earth and are also interfacing more and more with wild habitats and people. And so it's drawing humans closer and closer to wild animals, to domesticated animals. And that really is the central location for these viral spillover events to occur. It is kind of strange because in the, you know, I guess in the overall scheme of things, we're all animals here on earth, right? All part of the same species, um, so to speak, like earthlings. And yet we're competing for the same space. And um, obviously, you know, um, it appears as if a lot of wildlife habitats are being pushed out of the way and disregarded. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is certainly an aspect of this which hopefully will resonate with people that we need to become better stewards of our own natural resources, that we need to take better care of Mother Earth yeah. and really ensure that we are preventing these types of risky exposures uh, for future pandemics. And speaking of different types of like wildlife, what makes bats a central focus when it comes to these kinds of things? Sure. Why bats? Uh, so why not, you know, the... deer? <laughs> yeah. 
and and anything is possible. That's the that's the bottom line is that anything is possible as a potential source for a viral spillover event. Uh, the reason why bats have tended to be a focus is that if you take the more than 6,000 different mammal species on Earth, bats are almost one fourth of all of those mammal species. And so even just from a statistical standpoint, uh, it's very likely that something would be found within bats. There's also then these kind of interesting physiological and evolutionary relationships with how bats have evolved flight. They have developed really interesting types of immunity. And so their immune systems are actually quite resistant to most types of viruses. And so they are able to proliferate, replicate and be reproduced within their bodies. And then that could be a potential source for a spillover event into humans. So they're just master carriers. And does it matter the species of bat? Do, do, is there a particular species that is, I guess, more dangerous to humans being close to than others? Again, there, there, there's more than 1500 different species of bats. And so it's difficult to characterize what we know and what we don't know. There's still sure. so much left to be explored. Uh, but we do know that it is both kind of fruit eating bats, insect eating bats. It is across a wide variety of species, but it's not just bats too. There's loads of things that we can get from chickens, pigs, uh, primates, rodents. So let me ask you this then, from an ecological standpoint, what can countries do around the world to prevent future pandemics? I mean, what can they do? I mean, obviously um, international travel will continue. There are different, different standards and protocol in health um, varying around the world, right? So what can independent countries do to combat this? Well, if we go back and kind of think about some of those root drivers of change and what is really reshaping the surface of the earth and bringing people into closer contact, if we can reduce some of those factors, we then reduce the risk of exposure. And so focusing on policy efforts or business efforts that mitigate some of the damage that we're causing. So thinking about reducing deforestation, further regulating mining, further regulating the timber industry, controlling the way that we expand our road and infrastructure networks, all of these things are really important to minimizing disease risk. We also have our own kind of personal responsibilities. What we choose to buy, what we choose to eat, all have these cascading effects on what happens around the world. And so we need to think about that carefully. And then in kind of an even more uh, abstract level or indirect level, who we vote for and who we choose to have leading our country really impacts the decisions that we make. They both Absolutely. influence environmental policy, but there are also reverberations in terms of uh, how a pandemic is managed once it does happen. And we know that this is not a one-off. We saw this with HIV, that was a zoonotic disease that spilled over into humans, SARS, MERS, Ebola, swine flu. Uh, there are so many examples of this happening. This is just the new one. There will be future events. Speaking of politics or um, I guess hearsay oriented around that arena. Um, how concerned should the public be to viruses created in labs? Is any of this true? Is this possible? So this is a topic that I am fairly unfamiliar with, so probably don't have great expert opinion, but I would say that the risk of something happening in a laboratory and spilling over into kind of public communities is a very small risk in comparison to everything that we are doing around the world to further exacerbate viral spillover events. Let me ask you this then, around the world, have academics like yourself identified certain hotspots 
um, where pandemics can come from? Where are those places? Again, I, I, I apologize if I sound repetitive at all, but I think we have to focus on some of these environmental issues of deforestation, sure. mining, kind of population explosions, because those are where the hotspots would be. So if you think about the areas and where there are high rates of biodiversity and kind of potential uh, sources for these types of animal viruses, and then you match those onto places that are rapidly experiencing change, the overlay between those two things are really where there could be the next uh, viral spillover event, but it could happen anywhere. This is yeah, something I was about to say, that's almost be, anywhere, right? It's it's an area where there could be an exotic location, or it could be in your backyard. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, let me ask you this: Is it true that deforest deforestation in the Amazon can cause the spread of exotic disease? And how? How would that happen? I mean, you're kind of touching on it right yeah. now. Um, it, it, it brings humans closer to wildlife by removing that. But are there other particulars we're missing? Yeah, so let me give you kind of a couple of examples. So something that one of my students is working on is looking at how deforestation and fragmentation in the Amazon is leading to a change in the diversity and abundance of mosquito species within the Amazon. And so it's this act of deforestation that then has these kind of rippling effects and cascading effects on a variety of different animal, insect, et cetera, species. And some of those species are more or less likely to transmit malaria. Um, what we've seen is that increasing rates of deforestation lead to an increasing abundance of the mosquito types that transmit malaria. And so it then kind of conjoins how environmental change is leading to increased risk of malaria. Let me ask you this. So um, I'm sure there are hundreds or how many species of mosquito are there? You'll have to ask somebody else. I, I don't know that off the top of my head. <laughs> well, I was wondering, um, you know, uh, whether different types when you were speaking of the mosquitoes in the Amazon, um, are there different types of mosquitoes that carry disease more, or I guess, are capable of carrying disease like bats better than others? Are they, are they a specific exactly. carrier for it? That's exactly right. Really? And so Anopheles is the kind of genus name for the mosquitoes that transmit malaria. There are then various species within that broader genus. And so some of them are more or less likely to transmit malaria depending on the species type. Before we dig into our next topic here at Innovation and Tech Talks, we've got to take a short break and hear a word from our sponsors. This is our moment to see more possibilities than ever before. To expand our thinking, our capabilities, and our vision. To leverage the unique strengths of two innovative companies to create new opportunities for you, our valued customers and partners. To build confidence and loyalty with consumers and become the number one intelligent lighting and smart home company in the world. This is our moment to make an impact. As significant as this. This is our moment to shine. You know, another interesting, uh, I guess, sidebar to the COVID-19 pandemic and, you know, all of the things that will happen down the line from it. And we see it with 9-11. We saw it with 9-11 or anything that shocks the market. 
Right now, my children get on planes. They have no idea why they remove their shoes or belts. They have no idea why we're going through TSA the way we do. I'm 43. I remember doing it another way. Um, but they have no idea. And a great deal of other things, because, you know, obviously 9-11 changed many, many uh, travel protocols and standards in the way we do everything. And now it's just the way we do them. Um, I'd be, I think our viewers would be very interested in hearing, you know, the possibilities like what, what COVID-19 residual protocols and standards around the world, what that could mean, and also what future pandemics could mean to shaping those standards. How, I mean, how restricted could we make ourselves? I think that that future that you speak of is one that's almost scary to think about. And so almost anything could happen in terms of how strict we need to become depending on the severity of a given virus and how ill-prepared we are for its kind of emergence and onset. Uh, but certainly I think that this has reshaped the travel industry, the transportation industry. And I think that it will be a long time before we return to quote unquote normal if we ever do. Uh, and so I'm hopeful that there will be new kind of hygiene and sanitation practices that will just become commonplace uh, and hopefully it won't go too far in the direction of uh, unnecessary protocols. But I think that what we're doing right now is really necessary. We need to be wearing masks. We need to be taking these kind of incredible precautions because it is such a serious disease. And I, I'm not sure you can comment on this, but I'm sure you have an, a, you know, an, an opinion. Um, I'd recently read on, you know, working through the CDC and doing stories that there had been over just over a million deaths globally related to COVID-19. And it makes me think, you know, had we not started taking such extreme precautions as far back as March, where those numbers really could have been, right? I mean, what is that? I mean, I, I wouldn't even know how to do that math. Yeah. I mean, I think that we as a country are over a quarter of all of the deaths globally. And so it's just uh, highlights how there can be incredibly variable responses to different types of policy decisions. We traveled to Liberia for uh, parts of this show and because they had prior experience with a pandemic with Ebola, they were very quick to act when they heard news of the novel coronavirus. In late January, when news of this kind of emerged, they immediately began kind of altering what they were doing with their borders, having people wear masks, getting people's temperatures checked when they arrived at the airport, uh, having hand washing stations in front of every building. And to this day, they have less than 200 cases. And so it is something where the policy response and the way that we manage these types of diseases is incredibly important in terms of how we can respond. So it sounds like you're telling me in countries where they have experience, they're long past trying to politicize it. They're just simply trying to stay healthy. They have bigger things to worry about than politicizing something that is apolitical. Absolutely. When you have a scientific Absolutely. reality and when you have people that are suffering and dying, there isn't time to politicize. Agreed, agreed. Very well said. So let's continue that. Let's, let's maybe talk a little bit further if we can about some maybe residual standards and protocol, um, you know, that, that would, could it extend beyond travel? I mean, um, you know, I remember seeing something not long ago, well, it's been about 15 years ago now talking, they were questioning the validity of city, cities because of the online virtual environment, bringing everyone closer together. No one needs to be any one place anymore. 
Um, so, you know, the validity of large high-rise buildings, big conglomerates of people. Now in a post-COVID world, um, you know, all I think about now, if I'll ever go back to a movie, is that outbreak scene. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Where they cough and then the germs fly through and you get the 3D float yeah. along. And <laughs> you know what I mean? I, um, I know exactly what you mean. So I'm wondering, if, you know, beyond travel, I mean, are we going to see new standards and protocol all the way to going to the movies? I mean, I think that we already have that right now. So, I mean, we already have restrictions on whether or not we can go to a movie theater, how many people can aggregate in a given space, what we need to wear, how we need to act. And so I think that those types of futures already exist right now. Whether or not they remain permanent, I think, will be how quickly we want to... Um, forget about what has happened. And so I think that there will be a time where we need to begin loosening some of these restrictions because there is a kind of beauty in human connection in congregating with people in public. And certainly from an education standpoint, I work at a university, virtual education is great. It's a great substitute for right now, but it does not replace in-person learning there is a connection that students have with each other. There is the kind of group dynamic that is missing and that can't be replaced with current technology. And so we need to understand what is lacking. And I certainly hope that some things do change, maybe unnecessary meetings that we never needed to have in the first place. Don't there are a lot of those. Uh, but th there are a lot of things that we still need to do in person and there's a great benefit to it. Well, I'm sure, um, you know, human interaction is every bit as, a, as important to evolution as, you know, many uh, photosynthesis, right? It's, you know, that's an, an crucial aspect of a, of a human being's, you know, part of being um, is evolving and interacting with humans. Removing that for good would probably have, you know, longstanding negative um, connotations, I would think. But in the future, I'm sure a lot of things will go back, but I'm just wondering, will, you know, maybe the, the seats in the movie theater not be so close? Will there be different angles of doing small things, just small things that we're going to notice in 20 years? Oh, 2020. Yeah. That's from 2020 here. Entirely possible, but I'm probably the wrong person to ask. I don't know if I, uh, I, I, I can't see the future as, uh, as well as others, maybe. Well, let's do this. Let's finish up talking a little bit more, more about virus hunters. Talk to us about the season. Talk to us, you know, give us sort of a, the, the Cliff Notes version. Don't sneak peek too much. Yeah. But, you know, um, maybe summarize the season. Talk about if there's going to be a season two. What's to come after? So this is just a one episode documentary special. So it's a kind of one night event. It is kind of following me and James Longman, who's an ABC News foreign news correspondent. And we travel to the front lines of where epidemics have happened before, uh, both in Turkey and in Liberia to kind of see what happened in the first place. How did these viral spillover events occur? Um, what are researchers doing on the front line to identify and characterize these novel pathogens, viruses, and bacteria? And what are we doing to kind of move forward in the future to prevent the next pandemic? And we kind of end up in the United States where we're thinking about how this is not just an issue of wildlife diseases, it's also one of domesticated animals, how we do industrial farming and how all of this is kind of related to the overall food system and how our food system is deeply interconnected into the way that diseases transfer. 
Sure. So let me ask you one final question before we call it a day. Um, sure. Do you have any other work with Nat Geo you're going to be doing down the line? Any other things? Yeah. So uh, right now we don't have any kind of media related uh, projects in mind, but I am with them as an explorer and fellow. And so I'm working with them on their planetary health strategy at the moment, uh, thinking about ways in which the organization can engage in really understanding how environmental change is related to human health. Well, Chris, I really appreciate you coming on Innovation and Tech Talks and speaking with our readers and viewers uh, about all of the things going on around the world and battling pandemics and the potential of future pandemics. Um, a lot of the things you say are scary sounding, yeah. but in a good way, I think right now more than ever, we need to listen to people like you that went to school for all of this and um, you know can guide the rest of us on what to do. If they have a question about commas or where to put an Oxford comma or a headline, they can call me, right? Yeah, uh, but sounds, we appreciate you like joining us today. All right. Thanks so much, Joe. It's nice to meet you. Thank you.